pickaxe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to One Life Left. We are Resonance FM's video games radio show and this week we have a very special episode. Over the next hour you'll be listening to Elite's co-creator David Braben in conversation at BAFTA. If you want to find out about this or any of the upcoming BAFTA events you can go to their website at www.bafta.org. We want to say a big thank you to BAFTA for allowing us to broadcast this audio. One Life Left Proper will be back next week and of course you can still get in touch with us by visiting www.onelifeleft.com or emailing team at One Life Left. We look forward to seeing you next week, but for now, please sit back and enjoy David Braben and Life in Video Games. quite as if somebody's expecting us to uh, say something. Uh, hello, welcome along to this evening's uh, event here at BAFTA, a Life in Video Games. Um, my name's Phil Elliott, I'm the Managing Editor of GamesIndustry.biz. Um, I think quite a few of you here will be here through the GI Biz network, um, hopefully. Uh, quick show of hands, how many? Not oh, quite a few, great stuff. Um, good to see you all here. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, GamesIndustry.biz is a trade website for the video games industry. Um, and the network is, is open to anyone who is working in the industry or studying to get into the industry or, uh, or anything like that. So um, that's uh, my promotional piece out of the way. Um, just another minor housekeeping point before we go on. This is uh, part of BAFTA's Learning and Events Programme. And you can find out more details. I think everyone should have uh, a leaflet. Uh, what's today? Yeah, it looks like most people have. So um, you can find out more about that uh, learning programme in the programme notes. Now... I wonder how many people remember <laughs> one of these. The BBC Micro. Uh, it was uh, one of the first computers in our schools, uh, in our homes, and for, for, I don't know, I wonder how many people in this audience, the first taste of video games. Um, it was on this machine that uh, a Cambridge student co-wrote in 1982 a certain game called Elite. They went on to follow that up with other seminal hits such as Zarch, Frontier, which was the sequel to Elite, uh, Rollercoaster Tycoon 3, 
there was some Wallace and Gromit games. There was Thrillville, um, Lost Winds more recently, and the latest version of that franchise is Lost Winds uh, Winter of the Melodias. Uh, He's still in Cambridge. He founded his own company, Frontier Developments, a leading games company in the UK. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce David Braben. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, uh, I mean, let's. What we're going to do this evening is is uh, look back at your career, really, um, and talk a little bit about uh, the early days. Run through some of your experiences in the past 25 years, because it is 25 years since uh, Elite was released. Frightening. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I will open up to questions from the audience towards the end. So if you've got anything, save it, uh, and we'll do questions at the end. Um, first of all, well, this is uh, kind of where the journey began. This is a, a much-loved copy. It's not mine, I hasten to add. Uh, sadly, I didn't come to the franchise until the Commodore 64 days. Uh, Elite. How many, hands up, how many people played Elite? <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good number. That's the vast majority of people. So it's a partisan crowd, so you can be happy. <laughs> um, but, I mean, obviously before then, what, what was the first game you played? What can you, what's your, sort of the first taster of video games for you? Um. Well, I remember there was a company called Binatone who made a sort of rip-off of Pong, uh, had Pong, um, uh, uh, well, they didn't call it that, they called it tennis, <laughs> they called it um, the one where you bounce against the wall, but they didn't call it breakout, because of course that also probably wasn't licensed. But I, I mean, I, I saw, um, there was one of the local pubs, they had Space Invader, and um, I loved Defender, Williams Defender. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the early games that... Um, were really good, but they were all what we would now call twitch response games. Sure. And so I think that a lot of the the reason that I wanted to write a game like Elite without even knowing that Elite's what I wanted to write was partly because they got came to a point where a lot of the games felt very similar to each other. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, all the arcade games were very novel. I mean, Pac-Man came along and it was completely different to, to the other games. But the, the problem was most of the home computer games were just derivatives of those. Some of them quite blatantly, even with the same names as the arcade games that they were copying, but not officially, if you know what I mean. And uh, I think there was a lot of hoo-ha about that at the time. The good old bad old days. Maybe. That's right. Yeah. So, um, give us sort of a paint us a little picture. Then, uh, what was the point at which you decided? Thought, right, okay, I think this is a great idea. Going to make a computer game because in those days they were called computer games, not video games, which is much more trendy. Um, what what point do you think? Right, okay, we need to make a computer game. How, how, yeah, what was your first steps? It, it wasn't quite like that. I mean, because I was. Um it was all very amateurish. It sounds like this was all terribly planned. But uh, I was fascinated with 3D graphics. And um, I got an Acorn Atom and um, was utterly disappointed how slowly... I thought if you drew lots of random dots and made them move apart, it would look like 3D. But it sort of went... And so there no feeling of motion. So I had to learn um, what's called assembly code, which is working at a much lower level in the computer to do that. And that was my first experience of 3D, and it was just—it felt so amazing. I wanted to do something with it. I then um, went to university, cutting a long story short, and met Ian Bell, who was actually working on a game. And it seemed logical to do a game because by then, sort of what hinted at just now, I think we both were both huge fans of using computers for gaming, but thought just parroting um, games from the arcades is 
way short of what we could do. You know, we wanted to write a game for ourselves, and we figured there were a lot of people like us out there who um, would want, you know, would similarly want a game, who were sick of the, the coin drop. What's put the point of having a coin drop mentality in a computer you've got at home? Um, which actually, sort of winding forward a little bit, the, the first publisher we showed Elite to, and Elite was mostly finished by then. You could play it, you could trade, you could dock, you could save your positions, um, was to Thorn EMI in London. And they said, oh, we don't want this. this is, it's a beautiful tech demo, but it takes, it's going to take ages for anyone to, to, to play any distance in it. I said, yes, isn't that great? <laughs> they said, no, we want 10 minutes gameplay. It's the typical time we aim for. And I said, well, why? We don't have to get coins into a machine anymore. Um, and, and I think it's that change in mindset. They didn't like the fact we had no score, which we were very proud of. You know, the, the, what was really funny is this is the time of a lot of sort of political unrest. Thatcher was um, the um, prime minister. We had the, the miners' strike was just brewing at that point and started actually while we were writing Elite. And, and so, and in fact, um, doing things completely out of order again, there was a piece on the Channel 4 News in November 1984 um, where we were the jokey bit at the end of the news, if you like, um, where there was a great long interview. But uh, I've actually got a tape of it, and um, yes, a tape, remember the tapes? Uh, there was a long discussion where there was, there was a, tri- a strike at uh, Austin Rover, and then there was, a, there was a long interview with Arthur Scargill, and then there was a piece about Elite. You know, the, the point is, the, the, the Thatcherite thing at the time was, um, it, it just seemed so right in a slightly ironic kind of way to make money to score, uh, because actually the way we conceived of it of, of that against sort of the games that were around at the time. So what's the point of earning a score? I think one of the things that rile both Ian and I is a lot of the games that were then coming through on computers like the BBC Micro and the just-released Commodore 64 um, was there was a one-upmanship where most games... There almost became a rule that scores were in the order of 10,000 and then you get an extra life at 10,000 then you go up to 20,000, another extra life. And then some games started making it 100,000, and it was a million. And you just think, well, no, it just became utterly, utterly pointless. <laughs> and so, you, you know, you might as well just etch two zeros after the score and ignore it. So um, it, it's that sort of mentality. Well, so what, what if you could spend score to get better stuff? And, you know, and that's where the, the concept of money came from. But the, the setting at the time, I mean, as you say, we, we didn't sit down and say, right, we're going to conquer the world by writing a computer game. It was more of a case of... I mean, it's the, it's the right place, right time, in the sense that the, the opportunity was there. Uh, but also, because um, we had the opportunity to do a game in 3D and no one had done it, we were both terrified that someone else was going to do it. It just seemed so possible that we were afraid. I mean, not, not through theft or anything, just someone else would have had the same idea and steal the thunder. And we would just be in also ran. So, you know... It's, what drove us, I think, was not to make the ultimate game, but to make a game that we would want to play. Mm. What, how old were you when you first started? Uh, I mean, you were at Cambridge University, or was it before then? Um, well, I first started playing around with 3D graphics, which was on an Acorn Atom. Oh, and I didn't even have a BBC Micro, and the Acorn Atom was no longer commercial, so I couldn't afford one either. So there were a lot of other motivations here. <laughs> um, I try and think. When Elite came out, I was 19, just, or just about 20, so, so I think we started it when I was about 18, yeah. yeah. And I, I started programming when I was about 17. And, uh, I mean, clearly you had no expectation that this was going to 
do major things? Or, I mean, did you, you must have had some kind of hope and think... Well, you always oh, hope. Maybe. You know, that there's... Yeah. Um, I, I think you, you, you hope one thing, and in the back of your mind you think probably something else, <laughs> you know, a lot less optimistic. Uh, I, I think I, I was confident that if it got... Firstly, if it got to market, you know, you, you, so many things, you know, you're just always assuming, oh, what if my house burns down? You know, what if, <laughs> what if, what if, what if? Um, you know, what if we're ripped off somehow? What if, because that happened to a lot of people, mm. uh, um, what if someone else brings out something that's better before we get it out? Um, and so I, I think if it, had, if it got to market as we hoped, and I was confident it was going to be successful. Mm. But then there are so many different levels of success. In those days, I think the highest selling game that we had heard of was um, 30,000 units, one of the Acronsoft games had done, which I think was their Defender game. Sorry, Planetoid. Nothing to do with Defender. No, nothing it to just do. looked surprisingly similar. <laughs> Never happened. Yeah. Um, well, it was actually a very good, <laughs> it's a very good game. It's one of the better ones. Um, so, uh, you know, Elite did... Um, Acorn were very brave as well. I mean, that was the other point. Had Acorn not been fully behind it, would it have been so successful or would it have just been pirated to blazes, mm. which is the other possibility. Mm-hmm. We could sell 10 copies and still everyone has it. Yeah. You know, that um, Acorn's first print run of Elite was 50,000 units, which is actually more than their highest selling game to date. That's so faith. Very brave. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did come to market, thankfully, for yeah. everyone here. Um, and uh, we can actually take a look at and see the game being played on the big screen, um, which, and David's very kindly going to demo Apologies that, for the so. embarrassing shot, by the way. Which one's you? It's the one on the left, right? No, neither of them. Here it is. Look at that. Isn't that glorious? Yes, nice bit of no- nostalgia. All those could, lost I, 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 Anyway. Uh, I can try playing it. Start. Yep, go. Press the start button. Yep. So what you're seeing here is um, a copy of the disc version of BBC Micro Elite. So um, for those few of you in the audience who didn't put their hand up, uh, the, you start off with a spaceship, which is the one on the front screen, and you get 100 credits and almost no equipment. So you're very, very vulnerable. The way the game worked is you had a, a galaxy. There's um, one of the galactic charts full of, um, of uh, different systems, all of which had weird names. Now, the great fun things with Elite is none of these are stored in, this, in the machine. They're all made up as it goes along. But they're always the same. So there's a zoomed-in map of the chart. So you can see that... um, Actually, just a a bit of an aside about how this worked, because although this is very techy, it's only slightly techy. If you imagine (laughs) taking two numbers and adding them together, you get a third number. And if you just keep doing that and just look at the bottom two digits, they can look quite random, especially if you take one of the middle digits. And... That's called a random number sequence. A guy called Fibonacci, who was, I think, an Italian mathematician, first discovered this. Elite uses um, a slightly more complex version of that sort of approach to generate random numbers. And the beauty is, if you start with the first numbers, call it a seed, then the sequence is always the same. So each galaxy and all of the details you see in the galaxy, like that, and then the, the, the details for each individual system, like, that, you know, is, and even a little description, as you see, um, is made up from that principle. So in other words, it generates a whole sequence of numbers that generates eight different galaxies and everything that's in it. So as um, I remember it in the early days of Elite, because we, we've got Elite fits into 22K of memory, which is smaller than most emails. That's the, that's the, sh- <laughs> the shocking thing. 
Um, the BBC Micro had 32K, but you need 10K for the screen and bits and other bobs. So we had to get it into that space. So we, we were scratching our heads about how on earth to, to squeeze, um, squeeze it into such a small space. And this was the technique, because um, we, we were originally talking about compression. We were saying, oh, what if we just state, store the names? And then maybe the second letter would determine the sort of economy and the third letter would, might determine the government. We thought, wait a second, but we could generate the names as well. And then it sort of all disappeared up its own uh, logic, which was... Which was it, but the fantastic thing is it meant we could... Because Elite, when we first showed it to Thornium Iron, first showed it to Acornsoft, um, had two to the 48 different galaxies in it, um, which made it fairly obvious what it was doing, that it wasn't storing anything. But the, the, um, the beauty with this... Um, sequential um, approach, this is the random number generator, that galaxy, it's actually going through that sequence. There are 256 stars there. goes through it 256 times. Um, but the nice thing is we chose the seeds by, I actually remember, sort of auditioning galaxies, if that's the right word. And some of them would be lopsided or would have big gaps in them. And then the other problem is, are all those stars reachable? Because we had other game rules, like that circle, um, is the range of your fuel. So the question is, can, are it, can everyone be got to or got from? So there are different things like that. And then there was one we thought of really late in the day, um, which actually didn't cross our minds until later, is that they, some of them named planet names might be rude. And <laughs> I think there is one star in one of the galaxies called Ars, which is as bad as it got. <laughs> but nothing ruder than that. So that was, that was the little story behind how we did it. And... Um, so there are eight of these galaxies now. Did, did you actually go through all of them and check and to, to know that there was one called R? So would you just... No, um, we wrote a program to search. To search. So and, and you, you clearly... So it was a case of screening out rather than screening in. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I don't know if you... When you get to... Because people can be quite inventive with rude words, right? I mean, that's the... The, the game was essentially finished and it was, there were interesting things come late on where you start to think, ah, is there anything rude in there? Is there anything that's illegal in there? And then we said, well, we do trade in slaves and narcotics. Is that okay? <laughs> and, you know, and suddenly it becomes the lawyers start to say, oh, I'm not sure about that. Excellent. Well, do you want to, I mean, dive in, because yes, we, okay. we want to see so, it in, uh, in action. There's, the idea is, I won't do it, but the idea is you choose um, goods to, uh, to take between A to B, if you want. You don't have to be a trader. You can just go out and be a pirate and shoot other ships. You can be a bounty hunter. You don't have to choose the role. You just do it. You can even um, shoot the police. So let's, um, for those who... That's um, also illegal, by the way. Yes, but you get chased by the police, and you become a fugitive, and it's all good fun. Consequences. There we go. Yeah. So, um, and there's also docking, which um, hopefully, if I get that far, I'll have a chance at failing at. <laughs> so, uh, let's just, so for, for the nostalgia then, here's if I just turn around, we can have a look at the space station. First thing I'll do is invest in a docking computer. Yeah. Oh, we haven't bought anything, so I'm doing this with the absolute basic spaceship. So, let's try. Should we be very brave and go to the pirate, the anarchy? I mean, it almost certainly won't get through. Okay, so the, the idea is there are different government types, and Anarchy, which is the place we're going to, uh, has lots and lots of pirates and almost no police. So, so the idea is you could choose how much to bite off. Uh, so we've already, there's, there's something on the radar to this. Uh, there's a funny story about this radar as well, which is the game, right up until release, had two different radars. One was a side view, and one was a view from the top. And it doesn't appear to be friendly there. No, I've noticed that. Oops. I think I better use a missile. 
no! And <laughs> uh, a lot of people will remember there's a device called ECM which shoots down missiles, <laughs> you, which you, I you don't, don't have. have. One of those, do you? <laughs> so you have to shoot the missile before it gets you. You have to, or evade it. It's got me. But if you, for those who saw, it, I, it got, got it on the aft shields, which weren't damaged. Sorry, weren't previously damaged, so it was so just okay. enough to... Um, I'm okay, yes. Phew, yes. That was sense there for a moment. So, so I, I mean, you, you sort of hinted at that uh, idea of sandbox. You know, you didn't have to define what you were going to do, you just... I said, there goes the missile. Yay! <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> and did you see I got a bounty? And 25 years on, that's still quite satisfying. It is, yeah. <laughs> well, it's such an unforgiving game. I mean, having played it in this, this last week, you, know, you, know, you realise how unforgiving it was. Yay! That, that's, and that's I also that, haven't got a fuel scoop, so, so I can't, can't get that cargo. Cargo. It's an interesting point, actually, is you'd never be able to get away designing a game with that kind of learning curve Not now, now no. would you? Because people play games in very different ways now, don't they? Yeah, and I think that you've got to invest so much learning into this game, and things like docking were just so cruel. Um, and apologies to everybody for all those. <laughs> yeah, now's the time to get all the angst out of the way. Yeah, it's been stored right. up for 25 years. On the disc version on the BBC Micro, it does say sorry if the docking computer crashes you. <laughs> Which, you know, clearly makes up for losing everything. I seem to remember that cost, it cost about five bytes to implement, which was a huge amount of memory. Which is why it wasn't an exception. So, uh, sorry, I'll go back to my previous question. I mean, Sandbox is something which uh, a lot of people would say was effectively invented by the concept of doing anything, going anywhere, not defining your role. Um, I mean, obviously it was a conscious decision to have a game like that, but was it, did you feel it was a bit of a risk? I mean, you, I know you said you're making the game for yourself, still. Well, we were very afraid, especially with the response from Thorny MI, that um, we were only writing a game for ourselves. Oops, sorry, I crashed into him. Um, we don't get to see a failed docking. That would have been... <laughs> do, you want, do you want me to try just docking? I can just launch and redock if you want. If you want to see a no, failed docking... Okay. I, won't, I won't put you through that. It's no, okay. I will. Okay. <laughs> I'm a masochist. You just want to prove that you can. Uh, That's right. you can't. Well, I'm slightly worried that I might not be able to. <laughs> I've got the excuse that we're talking and I'm trying to play. Clearly, so, yes, yeah. yes. Well, if I stop talking to you, then there would have, there'll be no excuse. Uh, yes, in that case, keep talking. <laughs> Yeah, you're saying Thorn. I mean, the reaction to Thorn EMI was, was yeah, it somewhat... Yeah, was the worry that they, they had very much assumed that games have to be like the games that are previously sold. And our fear was, maybe, maybe we are in a, in a minority. And, um, you know, we, we had sort of kidded ourselves, if you like. So here we go. I can't watch. <laughs> Yay! That was good. That was fast as well. There he is. Uh, my risk of Earth state, I would never go that fast. I mean, that's just insane. Um, I yes. haven't been on a long mission. I didn't have a lot of <laughs> yeah, riding true. on it. <laughs> well, I don't know. Respect. You lost all of it. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, but it is a risk, isn't it? I mean, trying to, trying to kind of put something out there that's not been done before. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, in the end, you were in less of a minority. How many, what was the unit sales like? Um, in well, in, in round numbers, it was, it was close to a million added up over time. But that was over a long period mm. of time. That was just for the original, not for the... No, 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 sorry. Oh, yes, just for the original, yeah. yes. 
um, but across lots of different versions. We did, we, I was counting them up, I think it's on our website, there are about 17. I say about because I'm not sure there weren't ones that was either started and didn't make it. <laughs> the, what we don't realise now, I mean, in those days, there were so many different formats that people haven't heard of. Maybe someone's got it in a cabinet somewhere, like Auric Atmos, do you remember that? <laughs> you know, um, which I, we thought of doing a version and didn't, Tatung Einstein. They were all what? in, yes, exactly. Tatung, never, never big, big... Um, I'm showing my age in the wrong way now. Well, I don't think they did made very many of them, but there were lots of these machines. They keep, people kept trying to bring new machines onto the market. There was a big Japanese consortium that brought out a machine called MSX, which was going to be the new standard. Um, I think Yamaha made one that, that I'm not sure Sony may even have done. There was a big range of manufacturers. And unfortunately, the machine was just behind the times because by the time they'd agreed the standard, it was already out of date. You know, and, and so... All of these different machines came along, and it was a lot like it was really the move to 16 bit that hugely reduced the mm. number of competitors, I suppose, partly because the cost of bringing a machine to market was much higher. The problem with 8 bit is 8 bit technology was, when it came out, was actually behind the curve. They were the sort of electronic components that you or I could actually go to a hardware shop and buy and make one. And you, you could make something like a BBC Micro and design it yourself, and it would cost you a few tens of pounds for the components. And I mean, okay, motherboard aside, if you were to make mm. this, something wonderful called VeroBoard, I'm sure a lot of people here have, have used it, you know, the machines were simple enough that you could make them on that. Whereas nowadays, with the, the sort of 10-layer circuit boards and surface mount components, you've just not got a chance. So, so I think that you know, it, it, the, the times were very different, but that was why so many companies could plough into the market with lots and lots of different machines, which we tried to support as many as we could. Mm. And w- was it a relief in some ways then when, I suppose, the Commodore 64 was one of those defining machines, was it? I know it was the Commodore 16 first, of course, shouldn't forget that. How, how, kind of, how much simpler did it make making games? Well, no, it didn't make games any simpler. I mean, just to, just to go... Back slightly, you, you were just sort of asking the, you know, the taking the risk question. Um, I think the point is we went into Acornsoft and got as different a reaction to, to going to Thornium I as possible. <laughs> I mean, the, the, just, just to, to contrast, in Thornium I, everyone was wearing suits, smart, collared ties. In Acorn, they were all wearing T-shirts. Some of them had shorts on. You know, and, and so it was a very different atmosphere. <coughs> the, the Acornsoft guys were all enthusiastic, what people nowadays would call techie, um, and were really into the, you know, the games themselves. Whereas in Thorny MI, it, they were calling things products and will it, will it be, which quarter will it be available for? You know, and just go, hmm. I recognise some of those words. Well, yes, but it's a very, very different mindset. And in Acorn, they were all absolutely excited and, wow, this is fantastic. Wow, you know, how are you managing to do this? How are you doing that? I mean, the very fact that um, the, the, oh, sorry, you've got, the, but if you remember, the dashboard is in colour and the machine can't do colour at that resolution. Explain. I said, oh, yes, we did this and this. I said, wow, we could do that in other games. <laughs> and, you know, so it was, there was a fantastic sort of banter because they knew the problems we'd solved, if you like, and they knew how hard we'd worked to get there. And so um, th- their reaction, I think, was so heartening. Mm. Um, and that was partly why we went with Acornsoft. I mean, one of the reasons we hadn't gone with Acornsoft originally is we were afraid the BBC Micro then was a very much a minority computer because the Commodore 64 and then the just-released Sinclair Spectrum were huge in numbers. You know, you go to the shops and all the games were for the Spectrum or the Commodore 64 or the, or the Amstrad, and the BBC Micro was a poor relation because, firstly, it was a bit more expensive and it had less memory. You know, so, um, 
And it was in schools, which I think turned <laughs> off a lot of kids, <laughs> whereas the others weren't. It's used to that turtle game, with <laughs> four <laughs> 20 in turn, yeah. Um, so, I mean, clearly, you know, the success of Elite, you thought, hello, I think there's a future in this. Uh, you decide to carry on making mm-hmm. games. Um, what were your sort of, your, when kind of Elite was done, Dustin, I mean, obviously there was all the ports. When, when did you start thinking about the next project? How, okay, how do we follow this one up? Well, um, I think um, Ian and I, we, we, we um, both realised, sort of both how lucky we were to be there, mm. but also that we had to strike where the iron hot, iron's hot and do a sequel. So we actually started work on a sequel within about a week of finishing Elite. <laughs> and ironically, that's you know, partly where the, the dashboard came from, because I'd actually said, oh, you've got to change that. This is the... right. And realised how easy it was to implement. I thought, wait a second, and we actually put it into Elite retrospectively because we hadn't right. actually mastered the game yet even we were just thinking about where right. we go from there and so um the but that what actually happened is we got onto a little bit of a treadmill doing lots and lots of versions of elite mm. um we did i it's something like half a dozen versions ourselves but also supervised other people doing the um the translations and Although actually it was great fun, it did feel like we're solving the same problems over and over. And, and I think that takes some of the fun out of it. Um, and, and so the idea of doing a sequel, certainly for me, I think um, I was sort of hugely excited about and sort of piling up idea on an idea. And, and I think um, it's also, you know, we, we're getting older. We now, um, by the time, while well, the versions of Elite were coming on, but we both finished our degrees. And uh, in fact, the Elite master was a few weeks before my end of second year exams so it's a very interesting set of priorities there and uh, what happened to the degree did it all go well oh yeah finished good. it um and uh, no it was good i mean what was really nice actually about it psychologically a degree you feel oh, it's all super high pressure <laughs> but actually during that period it went over from the degree being the hob- the, the the work to the degree being the hobby in a in mm. a sort of psychological way well because once elite was out and I was thinking, well, it would be mad not to do more of this. And it was so much fun. You know, it's sort of really, really lucky. You know, some people say don't let your hobby turn into a career, but actually it's quite the opposite. You know, I was really lucky to be able to do that because, you know, who knows what else I'd ended up doing, probably, mm. you know, programming for banking or something. You know, do you know what I mean? Well, I hate don't to think so. banking. Goodness well, me. that's right. Although perhaps you could have saved us all, you know, in retrospect. No, I could have made the problem far worse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I was trying to put a positive spin on it. Yeah. Um, did you? I mean, you know, while while you're at university, did did you? You know, what did your friends think about what you were doing? Did it, was it, did it afford you some kind of celebrity status? I mean, was it? No, not really. Cool I mean, firstly, the, the um, I think students are very sort of contrary to that anyway. But there were a number of people. <laughs> Peter Irving, for example, was also writing games, and and a very good friend, still a very good friend. And so, you know, the, the, um, I think there was a lot of joking and teasing uh, and, um, in the sense I got a f- flat before we'd even left university, you know. And it, it's sort of, so it's extremely lucky. Well, you were teasing them then? In that no, case. it was teasing both ways. No, no, not at all. I felt very guilty about it. Um, the, 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 but, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I imagine it's the same. You know, it's, it's not unlike winning, winning the lottery. Because even though, even when you do put heart and soul into something, it still, it, it, it didn't, I suppose it didn't feel that we were entirely doing it for money, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so, um, although obviously to, 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 at some, to some level we, we were, mm. but, you know, the, 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 there was so much um, that went in because we wanted to create games. I mean, that most of the games um, that 
were pre before Elite came out, certainly before we started on Elite, were extremely simplistic. There were a few um, sort of there just started to be some graphic adventures as well. Uh, the the um, things like Colossal Cave Adventure, which started off in mainframes, that existed, and actually I think that pipped us to the post with having saved positions. I'm not entirely certain whether the home computer versions did. But, but certainly there, there were then, um, there was a game, I think Castle Quest came out for the BBC Micro, which is lovely, which was a graphic sort of type of what we might call now a platformer, but with puzzles in it. So there were new types of games starting to appear, but they were all very, very tightly derived on, of games that had gone before. And I think what Elite did is it opened a floodgate, not necessarily to games that were like Elite, but to allow publishers to experiment. Mm. For the same reasons that Thorny and I had said, no, this is something different. They changed over and said, something different, cool, that'll do well. And actually, I think some of them were probably rubbish. But at least, it, it, you know, it's like with films. If people experiment, you'll get some brilliant ones as well as some so-so ones. I think it's a really good thing. So I, I would say, um, you know, looking at games that came after Elite, there was a lot that was probably enabled mm. by it that publishers would have been very cool about beforehand. Yes, I mean, some interesting comments there, actually, which would probably be good lessons for the, the way the industry is today, you know, in the, kind of the, the economic times. But before we get to all of that, let's move on from Elite now, because I think we've uh, paid homage uh, pretty well. Um, Lambda, Zarch, uh, depending on which kind of version you played, that was, that was the, next, well, the what, next big one. I mean, I remember playing Lambda on, uh, it was the Archimedes, wasn't it? it, was, uh, and it was, was it was it a demo that was bundled with the hardware? It was a fantastic... Sorry, yeah. Does, it ha- does anybody remember Lander stroke Zarch? Excellent. Okay, so another a pretty good strike rate, quite a lot of people. Um, for the benefit of those people that didn't come across it, do you just very briefly kind of want to explain what it was about? Yes, it was... Um, the Archimedes was, a, um, I think, the first 32-bit home computer. And um, I was working on versions of Elite at that point and it was just we were just looking at where the sequel was going and Ian Ian Bell was um, we were starting to sort of drift apart and want to do different things mm-hmm. and I got an opportunity because I was, was very friendly socially with the people from Acorn who were developing the um, where Acorn's next projects were and I knew they were ge- developing a new processor I mean all very secretly and um, I was very interested to get involved now Ian wasn't that bothered he said oh let's get you know, sort of, I mean, not meaning to, to, to criticise, but he'd have a di- and, and it's quite understandable, he had other sort of interests that he wanted to sure. do. And so um, I had this opportunity to take this prototype, and I thought, well, look, if I... Um, he didn't want to work on it, I said, excellent opportunity, I'll take this, and you can do whatever mm-hmm. you want to know, and I did. Yeah. And it was a prototype machine, and um, it was amazing. Going from an 8-bit pro- programming to a 32-bit machine was absolute heaven <laughs> from a, you know you could do so much more with it it was so much easier to program and you didn't have to spend your entire life working around difficult performance bottlenecks memory um to to, comp- to give it in comparison one of the first prototype machines once it became a separate machine had four megabytes of memory now that sounds nothing now but that felt like whoever will ever feel you know use that productively um, pretty quickly, I realised that actually you do need quite a lot of memory. But um, even for for doing things like because uh, um, I actually ended up using that machine to help port Elite uh, games like Zarch that came later. Um, how it, it, in comparison, where an, uh, I later got a PC which would take three minutes to compile 
the, um, the virus code base, the Archimedes, it was a fraction of a second. You know, it was so much more powerful a machine, even than the newly released uh, 68,000 based machines like the Atari ST and the Commodore Amiga. And so it was, it was like, it was, more, it was probably, and I'd have to think what the time was, but um, the, the, the university mainframe was an IBM 3084 at that point. So it's probably more powerful than that. Just to put it into perspective, it was an astonishing step forward, that machine. And it's a real shame that it didn't really take off because mm. I think it was a bit too expensive. But anyway, I was presented with this opportunity and, I, and given a very small... They were planning to release the machine three months later and they didn't yet have a working operating system or anything. So I had to write a game and I actually hosted it off a of BBC Micro. So I was actually writing the code on the, and then downloading it to, the, to a second processor. Does anyone remember the second processor? Okay, a few people. This, it was a, a lump. If you look at the BBC Micro, you had another lump that went here and you linked it with a ribbon cable from down here called the tube. So you ended up with a big, sort of very expensive pile of these big sort of cream lumps, and it added that you could buy a second 6502 processor, um, which a lot of people did. I mean, you'd think these days, why would you do that? You've probably got that processing power on your watch, but it did make a big difference, because it gave you 64K of memory, which at that time seemed like a huge amount. Mm. But inside one of those boxes, they'd made a prototype for the arm, what's now the arm, which, by the way, just to show how important that was, it's now in, I suspect, more than 90% of mobile phones. It's the processor in the iPhone, processor in the phone I've got, which is a Nokia. Um, you know, the, the, almost every phone device, um, you know, the, the Nintendo, various Nintendos, like the Nintendo DS has it in. You know, there, there are a huge range of machines out there. Um, I think a typical PC like this laptop probably have half a dozen of them because it's in the disk controller. It's a fantastic processor. Anyway, that was one of the first processors, I believe, designed um, by people who were software experts rather than hardware experts. So they'd looked at how to make things go faster. Um, Sophie Wilson and Steve Ferber, the two people who originally designed it, did a fantastic job of making something go like the wind. So anyway, this opportunity came along. So in three months, I managed to, to write that game. And then Zarch was a commercial mm. game that was available for release of the machine. Mm. Because the Lander game was, went on the disc that, you, you, that was, bundled, was for free with the machine, it had to be ready a lot earlier because all that package has to be ready. So that was writing to a schedule. So that was actually a rip-off game of a game I'd written on the Acorn Atom all those years ago called Meteors, which was a 2D sort of take on asteroids. So you see an asteroid bounce down, break in two, except in 3D. So it was over a patchwork quilt in 3D, and um, I think it looked quite beautiful. I could try and find a screenshot if you want, or we can... No, let's, let's leave that. Yeah. I'll, I'll end up well, we're going to show some, um, some yeah. footage of uh, uh, sort of a, a follow-up to that. Yes, we? that's right. Um, how many people out of interest that, that played Lander Strokes Arch died on the launch pad before they even went anywhere. <laughs> yes. Most of the time, actually, so it's like... I kept forgetting. Well, there's actually um, a, a little bit of a story behind that because I wrote um, the game using a prototype mouse, which was absolutely fantastic because <laughs> it was bigger than the one the machine went with, but it weighed about three times as much, and it didn't skid. The one that came with the machine was horribly skiddy, so... Mm. If you went like that and then went back to the same place, the mouse wouldn't be in the same place. Whereas the, the prototype ones are really good. 
because the, they had a big heavy ball in the middle. That's, you know, that's your excuse. That's my okay. Your, that's my excuse. And I'm no, no, it's to fine. It. It's fine. I, I remember that this this skiddy mouse. It wasn't uh, wasn't very good. Um, I mean, so so I mean, obviously, you pioneering three D um, was a, a big part of, of certainly your early career. I mean, elite. Uh, Lander strokes Arch. I mean, Arch, just to explain, was effectively the full game, wasn't it? That's right. Of, of Lander. So Lander was the demo, and Zarch the full game. Um, I, and you moved on from there. Um, what, was, what, what was the next project? Virus. Was Virus. So just take us very briefly through Virus and how that was. Virus was essentially the same as Zarch, but Zarch was done very much to a timetable because of the release of the machine. And there were a lot of things that I wanted to do to make it better. So Virus was a sort of slight expansion of it. But also it was taken, taking the game principle and putting it onto the Amiga and the ST and the PC, which were hugely less powerful machines. Mm. And so it required a lot of optimization to make it go anything like approaching the speed of the Archimedes. Uh, so, um, but that was a very interesting challenge because it gave me an excuse to learn 68,000 assembler, which I didn't know at that point. Which was, but you know, with all of these things, you do something. I actually wanted to do it. I mean, okay, it sounds a bit sick and techy, and uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, the also, I wasn't really pleased with Zarch, if you know what I mean. Mm. It was there were a lot of things about it, it, not actually the controls so much, but there were just so many things that just loose ends that just didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. So you set up your own company, Frontier Developments, in ninety uh, three. Ninety three. Got it written down. It's fine. Um, what was that like? I mean, I mean, obviously, you've been making games for a while now. You've had two kind of loosely two big successes. Um, you sit down and you think, right, okay, now I need my own company. What, what was it then? Why not earlier? What, what well, were the decisions I, I, around that? After Virus, I um, started work on the sequel to Elite, Frontier. Mm-hmm. And it took... Nearly five years to write. Mm. I mean, there's no obviously guessing where the name came from. Frontier Developments was yes. You know, well, exactly. For, yes, for Frontier. Yeah, and and the problem was in, when when I, f- I did the graphics for Frontier first, and they were absolutely blow your socks off compared to the time. But in the time taken to write the game, it, things had moved on. And also, it's the first game where I felt it was a bit. I wouldn't say soul destroying is a bit strong, but you know the, when you uh, it was really great working with Ian on Elite because when you have a problem, you can talk about it and say, oh, what about this? And, you know, pros and cons. So mm. it had to sort everything out, really, you know, yeah, in yeah. terms of the game. So if things aren't going well, then they're just not going well. And it's not like you go away and they'll be better tomorrow because <laughs> you know, they don't get it's only you on it. And, and, and I think that that was the time where we, it was, we started to need a, a sort of team of people. Mm-hmm. It was probably, it was certainly the last game I was involved in where we it didn't have armies of artists. Of, I mean, it did, um, you know, the music frontier was done by Dave Dunn. Um, so there were other people working on it, mm. but it was substantially work. I was I, I, sitting day after day writing it. And so um, that's why... And, and, and the other point is, even when you work with people, then those people go off and do other things so they're not necessarily available for a follow-on project. Um, and there were various other people I knew, people like um, Jeremy San, who'd started a company, and actually thought, actually, that works quite well. That's quite a nice concept. So that was why I wanted to start Frontier, mm. because it's a, it's a brilliant way of sort of encapsulating that. Um, various people I'd been working with, like, for example, Chris Sawyer, who's a... Who's a also um, shareholder of Frontier, um, had done um, work. He, he's 
did the port of Virus to PC, of Elite Plus to PC, which is the second conversion of Elite. It was called Elite Plus because the first version of Elite that came out in about 86 for PC was CGA. So it was garish cyan and pink and white graphics. And so we did a VGA version of Elite and came out in about 89. Um, but we called it Elite Plus to differentiate it. So, but, so I've done a whole succession of games in he also PC Frontier that Chris Sawyer worked on. Um, and so it, it's really trying to sort of formalise some relationships that existed before. Mm. Now, I mean, obviously games are uh, becoming far more complex in the nature, much bigger, much more involved. Uh, but that kind of thing does throw up other challenges as well. Um, you know, particularly something that we kind of, you know, uh, almost ignore nowadays to an extent because the ease of patching games and things like that is, you know, bugs and errors with the code and things like that. So, I mean, that was one thing that, that you know, did have an impact on Frontier. How did you sort of get over that challenge? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, this is the, one of the things. I mean, the, the, the other thing is to think is we'd moved from developing sort of individuals to teams. Mm. Also, publishers were, were growing and... Mm. Um, you know that there were issues with game tech, which I don't want to go in. Sure. Some of the people will know about the problems with the Frontier First Encounters game, um, which was absolute. It's horrendous. You know it, it, that sort of thing happens. But actually, nowadays, because we have so many processes, that sort of thing's so much. It's just it's not going to happen in the same way. You know, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? I mean that. But it was an interesting time for the industry, wasn't it? Because it was that turning point between something which can be kind of effectively QA'd with a small number of people and, 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 you know, you can pretty much find all all the problems and fix them and that sort of Mm. thing, to suddenly the the range of of, of possible kind of errors, things that could go wrong. I mean, the games are becoming so vast that... No, but the point is we we knew the problems were there at the time. Right. (laughs) That was the point, and um, I can't go into details, mm. but... Well, that, that was the was subject of a lawsuit, so, which I'm going to say. But it, but it was, you know, when it's something the industry has yeah. had to... And, you know, I mean, that was, was maybe an issue back then, but it's, it's still an issue to an extent and ongoing today. For, you know, companies do find it... Bro- I mean, the point is now that with, you know, internet digital distribution, patching is so much easier. That's right. Um, well, but, that's you know, only it's on PC. It's not actually... On, I mean, not even on console platforms, you know, the... the, the you shouldn't go out, set out to make a game with faults in it, whatever. No, they, I mean, they're very minor, but for most people, if you put in a, a 360 game, for example, you know, it'll ask you if you want to update this game now if you're hooked into the internet. Um, and it'll just be a very quick bar across mm, there. That's and right. that's that. But, you know, it happens, and it's, it's part of the things. But, it, you know, it's an interesting time when the industry has to kind of, you know, lurchingly grow up. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a growing pain, isn't it? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, and I think the, the other point is, you know, that... that um, I think that there are often very different pressures. You know, that particular one was where the publisher was under huge financial pressure mm. and did things which other people might not have agreed with. Mm. You know, and, and so, and I'm sure these things, you know, happen in other industries as well. Mm. That, but I think the point is that, you know, that whether we like it or not, it, we are an industry. I mean, actually, interestingly, going all the way back to Elite... There were a lot of um, issues then that we were worried about. And actually, as it happened, didn't particularly pan out. Um, Elite had uh, software protection in it. Uh, and on the cassette version, I had actually written software protection. And in Elite, there are a number of data table areas which get filled up with data as soon as the game's running. But they're still loaded in from cassette. And so what we put into those data areas was... I 
originally, I'd written a really strongly worded threat that says, because the game was stored compressed and encrypted, and as you go through each layer, you uncover, you would uncover it as clear text. And it said, if you proceed any further, this game will destroy your computer using the following method. <laughs> and the, the first problem was that method, yes, it would work. <laughs> so Acorn were not terribly happy that, there was, <laughs> that that was out there. <laughs> and um, B, if someone's computer did die, we'd get the blame. <laughs> But the plan was to do that, but not actually have the code that did the damage in there, just in case it accidentally got executed. It. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, moving on, uh, since... Well, I mean, you, you we had to take genres. it out, by the way. And sorry, just to... <laughs> just for the record. Just for the record, it said <laughs> the text then was changed from the lawyers. There's, does your mother know you're doing this? And so... <laughs> <laughs> nice. I wonder if that would have had quite as much impact. No. But anyway, uh, that's for the legal team. Um, Roller Coaster Tycoon uh, was another project. I mean, Thrillville, um, you, you have Dog's Life, Wallace and Gromit. I mean, you, you've worked on, uh, you know, the, the company's worked on quite a wide variety of, of different projects, different licenses. I mean, what, what's the thinking behind that? Were you ever tempted to sort of think, well, you know, actually, we've had quite a lot of success with, you know, space-based games. Uh, let's focus. Well, yes, and a lot of people have said that. I mean, interestingly, um, by the end of the 80s, I was labelled as um, only doing space games because I think the perception <laughs> of Virus and Zarch was very sort of spacey, science fiction-y, mm-hmm. and similarly V2000 later. And so I wanted to um, do something. There was a huge... All the games were aiming at a specific set of people. And um, the, the thinking behind Dog's Life was actually you can do a game that's with a completely different perspective because, you know, the, the, so many people I know are having kids, you know, different mindsets saying, wait a second, why don't we do... We don't just showing that actually we can make things that are interesting and compelling um, that, aren't, that don't involve shooting spaceships or, in fact, shooting. Hmm. You know, and, and so, you know, there, there had been other games that had been successful like that, but they were still aiming at the same set of people. Mm. I mean, the... the a hugely a game I really liked, Populous, yeah. um, managed to do that. So I think, you know, looking at the games, and the other point is that people say, well, they won't sell. But actually, you look at the games that break out from that mould, they sell hugely well. Rollercoaster Tycoon, The Sims, all of these are Populous, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, because they were something different. And much as with Elite, that um, Ian and I were, I wouldn't say rebelling, because that that's not the right image, but you know mm. that we were wanting to move away from something we didn't really like. With Dog's Life, it was really say, "Look, guys, we can do something different. Isn't this fun?" And I think it was hard to, to, to a hard sell simply because I'd been labelled, or in fact, therefore Frontier had been labelled as doing space games. <laughs> um, there was a, a slight aside, which was around that time we interviewed an, an artist. Actually, I don't know if he's here. <laughs> It'd be quite funny. Uh, who <laughs> said his job was doing footballers' noses. And I just thought, no, we can't. No, Anybody? No. no nobody um, here worked on footballers' noses. Okay, okay. And <laughs> it's just that level of specialism. I thought, no, we're, you know, you're only here once. You really want to try and mm. sort of do things that are fun, that are different. And so, I mean, Dog's Life, which is uh, eventually published by Sony, I think was quite a, a break in the mould, although it didn't really... Um, 
it's actually interesting because we were, we were pushed to make it more like other games. And ironically, if we hadn't, we'd have something that would have hopefully done what Nintendogs did not very much later, <laughs> which is more or less what we were trying to aim for. Mm. Something that wasn't entirely a game but had toy elements to it. Mm. But briefly, brief, just run down for, I mean, I don't know if many people have played Dog's Life. What, what was that game? Just in well, Dog's Life was the, the world from the perception of a dog. So you're playing a dog. So you see the world in black and white, and you can see smells. And you can follow smell tales. You can see footprints in smells, so you can see where they lead. And it's the puzzles based around that, and the story's based around that. So a very, very simplistic story. It's quite sort of kiddie-focused, but then that was the intention. You know, so it's actually very easy, but it's quite fun. It's quite relaxed. You know, it's utterly non-violent. And, and I think it's just so different to anything else that's been around. So I think that also shocked a lot of people in the industry in the same way Elite did, but almost in the opposite direction. Um, but what, one of the interesting things is um, uh, Nick Park at Ardman got to see it and was actually impressed with the animation that we'd done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that started the, that was why we went on to do the Wallace and Gromit games. And so the other thing is we learned an enormous amount with Dog's Life in how you, um, how you can do games that are approachable to a wider audience, for example. Uh, and also with the Wallace and Gromit games, you know, how humour is a really hard thing to do. And I think, and Nick Park, who I'm, I'm forever grateful having worked with, and you, you know, never know, maybe we'll work with again, mm. was fantastic. He so understood what people find funny and why it's funny that, that with, with those games, you know, with each of these, I think we learned how to get, I mean, at least the first steps of how to get a game which isn't off-putting to kids, off-putting to people who wouldn't otherwise be gamers. And we're learning that step on step. I mean, interestingly, um, the Roller Coaster Tycoon games uh, also approach a very, very broad audience. And there is still Roller Coaster Tycoon 3. Um, I saw, I don't know whether it is this week, but last week was number one in the charts, the budget charts. Five years, it's coming up to its fifth birthday, which I know isn't 25, but still being number one, I'm very proud of that. (laughs) Admittedly in the budget charts, um, and partly because of the genius of Atari um, releasing it as a laptop version, (laughs) which, of course, because of the timing it came out, it works fine now on modern laptops. So so all sorts of little things like that. But it's a game I'm very proud of because there's still a lot of activity on the forums. People are creating rides and sharing them and all that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. But it's enthusiasm amongst people who are not traditionally gamers. And I think that's very, very refreshing. It's one of the few games which has a fairly equal... um, uh, ratio between the sexes for example and I, I, that's presuming people when they answer surveys actually put <laughs> answer it honestly <laughs> but you know I think that is a, is a huge um, change with Elite I bet it was probably 98-2 or something like that in terms of the, the sex ratio so moving forward from that I mean, games like Lost Winds which is actually almost a return to form because we're writing a game that we, is for us again um, is a very sort of mm. um, a different take on games. It's a, again, it's the sort of thing that publishers would find harder to go for because it's not like anything. That was the intent anyway. Um, and I think any games that aren't like anything are very hard to forecast. So it, it's sort of seen as risky. But I hope, mm. therefore, yes, okay, it's risky, but then that's also, there is a chance, you know, the upper limit's also higher. You know, with, with something like Elite, with something like Dog's Life, you know, the, 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 um, similarly, Chris Sawyer's Roller Coaster Tycoon, that was a game that took a while. The publishers didn't want it because it's too different. 
you know, all of these things happen. You hear GTA, another one, games are ones that people were very wary of to start with. Mm, well, I mean, in a, in a innovation and creativity, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they are risky, aren't mm. they, at the end of the day. Um, let's talk a little bit about Lost Winds. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's for the WiiWare platform. Um, mm. How did, what, why WiiWare? What was that decision based on? I mean, did you th- look at other platforms for that? Or was it, did you think, okay, well, here's the Wii, a great, you know, lots of them being sold, uh, the WiiWare platform kind of extension of that. Let's look at this. What game can we make for that? Or was it the other way around? Well, you, you, it's, it's really, the, the, we came at it for several different reasons. But as, as for someone, for writing games, you really want the freedom, the creative freedom. And that's actually a very, very hard thing to get mm. in the sense that you say, oh, you're doing that, oh, it's a bit risky. How do you know that people are going to want to do that? And the, the, the normal way, for those who don't know, that um, a, a lot of games are sold is it's a bit like the book, book author mentality. The um, game developer gets an advance from a publisher, uses that advance to make the game, and then hopefully gets a royalty thereafter. And that's in, that helps sort of fund ideas for future games and things like that. And... Um, the problem with that is very much working together with the publisher. And if the publisher doesn't um, sort of isn't aligned in terms of what you want to do, and a lot of them are, also very, very good, but that with something like Lost Winds, it would be very hard to show it's going to be successful. What you'd have to do is create a, a pretty well-finished prototype to show it working. Because the key thing with Lost Winds is using the, um, the remote, the Nintendo controller, in quite a novel way. And... If you describe it by waving your arms, you go, yeah, right, not sure that will be fun. <laughs> you know, and, and so we thought, well, we've got to make a prototype. So we made... The, the decision we made and the reason WiiWare was so attractive is we could be the publisher with WiiWare. Mm. You know, the, 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 the cost to market, as the, they would, would say, is much, much lower. So that's what's made it very attractive. We've seen a lot of iPhone games similarly. They're ideas... There's tightly encapsulated ideas that can just be tested out. Now, I think there are also a lot of games on these formats that are also a bit poor, which is a shame. Not, not so much WiiWare, particularly iPhone, um, because it's so easy. Yeah, yeah. They, they see big numbers for other games and say, oh, I'll have some of that. But the, the sad thing is it just dilutes mm. the good games the on gold, the platform. Sort of the gold rush mentality, I guess. That's right, yeah. But I think with um, we were we were right at the launch of WiiWare, which is also a fantastic opportunity, and, um, you know which Nintendo offers, you can't really turn that sort of thing down. But not only that, we, the game was designed for this controller. Because as a developer, we do get to see kit before it's out. But we did think, oh, we've got to do something on this that's designed specially for it. Mm. So those various things came together. So we did a really um, short, sweet development for the original Lost Winds game, which was a huge success for us. You know, mm. we won awards... Um, and it did really well, mm. you know. That and, and and it's a game that we're, I'm very proud of mm. because it's 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 pure in sense of it's doing what it intended to do and it's doing it well. Sure. It's approachable. Mm. And so proud that uh, you're putting together a sequel. Yes, um, we can actually watch uh, a video of that now, which is uh, we can a world exclusive. <laughs> Shall I do it? I'll do it here. There we go.
So, uh, a quick glimpse there at uh, forthcoming Wins Can I just Melodia. ask how many of you know the first Lost Wins game? Oh, wow. Again, a lot. Fantastic. So, right. <laughs> no, just stretching their arms. Some stalkers you have in the audience. No, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> don't. So, uh, I mean, to the future then. I know, obviously, Frontier Developments is working on other projects as well. Um, a couple that have been announced. Uh, the Outsider, which, yep. uh, briefly, just, just give us a very, very Yeah, The Outsider is... Um, we're really pushing forward storytelling. Mm. It's a game um, about the aftermath of the assassination of a US president. And don't worry, it's not, nothing to do with Obama. It's actually set in the, the term after Obama. Right. And um, it's about the... Look out that president, then. <laughs> the player has been accused of assassinating that president, <laughs> and it's about uncovering what's happened and also working out how you deal with it, because you can deal with it in lots of different ways. And the... Um, that's, that's all I'm going to say. It, that's all been said before. But, um, it's not, not going to spill any new beans. No, we're not going to spill any new beans. That's no. fine. I didn't expect so. Um, that's uh, in terms of, you know, that's obviously been worked on at the moment. Mm. Looking f- to a release at some point in the future. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but of course, you know, I mean, it would be good to, uh, to kind of round up with the Elite franchise. And Elite Four is something that you are also working on. Um, it would be. It would be mad for us not to work on it. I'm okay. not announcing anything about it, but obviously it's something that I'm very excited about, mm-hmm. and we will we'll do one. There must be, yes, there must we, be some have interesting challenges, though, I, I that we are, with, with today's technology and trying to translate the expectation alone must be huge. The expectation for me is huge right. as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, that's the point. It's been so long since the last version of Elite that um, I want to do something very different in the same mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. but um, without giving away more. Yeah, um, it won't come out unless I'm happy, and it's going to be that different thing. So, in conclusion, um, the title of this event is "Life in Video Games." I mean, when you look back on 25 years, what, what do you feel your legacy is? I mean, it sounds like <laughs> more of an obituary, doesn't it? It does. I yeah. don't mean to. I don't mean that at all. Because, um, I, but what do you want to be remembered for? It, elite? Is it? You know, what, I would what like. Would to, I would probably always hopefully be remembered for elite but i would like to think the things that i'm most going to be remembered for haven't come yet mm. you know i mean the, certainly in this industry i mean people i'm sure people have seen it the, the, the range of of what we've seen so far um we are still moving forward so quickly year on year that we're still at the beginning i i think we've gone um if you look at the flickery black and white films uh, from just after the sort of turn of the previous century 
then moving into sort of Buster Keaton, you know, sound came along, they didn't know how to use it for a good decade, and then they suddenly, you know, started telling the stories, and then by the 30s, you had, um, you know, some, some amazing change in the way films, had, had, you know, the mm. storytelling that was in there. And I think it still feels that we're right at the beginning of the industry. I mean, maybe we're at the end of the beginning, to quote Churchill. Mm-hmm. But the point is, there is still such a long way to go that it's a really, really exciting industry to be in. I feel really lucky to have been in there, if not at the very start, you know, very close to the start, and sort of have grown and learned with it. And I, and I think, you know, and I'm very, very grateful for all the people who've bought games that I've worked on to make that possible. Because I think that the, the other thing is, is you know... Maybe in a further 25 years we'll be having a discussion here. It would be great. You know, um, I, I think because the way things are changing, that um, and the, the, even now the promise in the next few years, uh, Nintendo have really sort of shaken things up mm. with the new control devices that we see on the Wii. Um, we've had announcements from Microsoft, the, the Natal project. We've had announcements from Sony with their wand. You know, mm-hmm. those, we don't really know what changes they're going to bring. But it's fantastic to know that there is there's that scope. You know, we still haven't exhausted things that we can do um, with the Wiimote either. Mm. That makes it such an exciting industry to be in going forward. I mean, I'm, I'm also a huge fan of games and playing games. It's lovely to see just how quality is improving. Um, you know, looking at games today, almost all of the games I've played recently are actually pretty good. And my memory of games of the 80s is most of them were <coughs> rubbish. They really were poor. Um, I heard a story, um, Phil might remember which game it was, because I, I, it was probably one of the ones I got stuck on. There was some game it wasn't possible to complete, because right at the end of the day they find, found out there was a problem with the last level. So they just made a, the previous level impossible. Absolutely yeah. uber there was a, I don't know if it's a myth, but Airwolf, the Airwolf arcade, I seem to remember... Was I don't know. That's Maybe probably that horrible it. legal implications. So perhaps <laughs> he said it not me. So no, I've no idea. I've never heard of any game that, uh, that you can't complete. Good. So yes, how things have changed. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I do remember a lot of games that I just thought that's not the game, is it? Yeah. You Absolutely. Know. It's uh, also quite crushing now if anybody did the emulator thing at all since the eighties and realised that Manic Miner isn't quite that gem of. Uh, immersiveness that it, that it once was. Anyway, um, on, that, on that bombshell, uh, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. Um, if you could wait until the microphone gets to you uh, before you start, uh, we are recording this, so that would be great. Hands up. Okay, the first one was that chap just up there. And we'll come to you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mark Morris from Introversion. I thought I'd just say who I am, makes more sense. So for me, the, the, the best thing wasn't the generation that you used to create this, this incredible, immersive world, a huge world with no boundaries that you could just explore until really you keyed into the, the manner in which you generated that particular world. And I think, um, certainly, I think in some degrees, the industry is kind of going back to that now. We're realizing that um, by using the machine to generate the world uh, in which the game takes place, you can do many, many bigger things than you can with, with kind of armies and armies of, of content generators, artists, and so forth. So um, given that I think that's probably the, the biggest achievement that you've given to the industry so far, could you talk a little bit about the transition that you made from moving away from procedural content to frontier you know, armies of artists and, and really kind of handing off work to people that, that probably, I don't know whether I'm going to say this, but yeah, maybe you were smart enough to get the machine to do on your behalf anyway. Um, was the, I mean, that's an interesting sort of addition to that as well. Was it because suddenly, with later games, you had so much more memory to play with, and you almost weren't kind of 
forced into those constraints. It's an interesting, mm. interesting It's a good idea. point, and I hope I haven't shattered people's illusion by saying how it's all put together. But the, the, um, <laughs> certainly the game frontier actually took the, the way Elite did it and took it way, way, way further. But the, the problem that I had with both Elite and Frontier is it felt very samey. Even though it was different, it felt samey. Do you know what I mean? Just rearranging things differently doesn't actually do it. And that you do need a richness of content that you can't have pure procedural generation. I mean, we still use a lot of procedural generation in, in things, but it's just not in your face. You know, if you have an area of gravel, it doesn't matter that the layout of gravel is procedural or not. Um, but you still do need... The puzzle needs to be generated by a person because a procedurally generated puzzle just gets very, very annoying. You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe, actually, I've said that, but you could generate Sudoku procedurally, so maybe I'm wrong. You know, the, 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 sorry, I don't like Sudoku, but I know some people do. Um, <laughs> and so the, 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 the problem with that is it's the same feeling of a puzzle again and again. And, and I think... There is a balance to be had, to be honest. Um, and, but you, it's a very, very good point to raise. Uh, that, but I think we are very good. We, I, people, um, people are very good at spotting patterns and also spotting when something is being created by a person versus created by a machine. And it, 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 it takes an awful lot of um, careful planning from the design point of view to hide that. And so I, th- I think the issue is, yes, there is a lot of procedural generation still, but the expectation of, of what you're seeing, you know, outside here we've got the whole of Washington, D.C., for example. You know, someone's got to model everything from a car to a photocopier to make that feel plausible. And so, um, you know, but procedurally you can still use that, you know, look at piles of smoke and things like that are all done procedurally. You wouldn't artistically do that. And so I think going forward, certainly, I think there is a lot of place. And in a sense, we've probably swung too far the other way. And I think you're right, which is, I'm guessing, the point behind the question. Do we use enough procedural um, things? But the the, the problem, actually, is how you use them can make what you see sort of less impressive, in a sense. It can look very systematic. I think I've not really answered it. Um, But... uh, and I think I actually agree with you. Yes, perhaps we should use more of it. That was the short version at the end. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got a, a video of uh, V2000, actually, which, which was an update to, to Virus, wasn't it? That, it was, uh, yes, it was uh, a the sequel. Next, next question was Guy just in the middle there in the, uh, the, the check shirt. So while the microphone's making its way there, if you want to uh, bring that one up, yeah. uh, just so that we've got something nice happening in the background as well. Yep. Hello. And just while that, uh, there was another, so, okay, after that. Okay, this game came out in 98, as you can see, and I can actually just force it to go into the demo sequence rather than me having to play it. So we'll, we'll let that run. Has it got volume that's going to be? Um... Uh, I can turn the volume down if you want. But I think that's about there right. Okay, so what this is doing is it's randomly selecting one of the, it's a level-based game, one of the levels of the game, and then playing it using the AI. Um, and interestingly, the question, this, actually, this game, although there's a lot of artist content, uses a lot of procedural generation as well. Clearly, that's why I decided to bring that up. Yeah, screen. very... Uh, let's have the next question. Uh, yeah, very interesting talk. Um, I'd like to ask you about uh, team sizes, uh, just because sort of it used to be um, games were generally made by very small teams, sort of less than five people. Um, and they've just gotten bigger and bigger over time. Uh, but like 
in the last couple of years, you've got uh, amazing things being done by small teams, things like uh, World of Goo and Cave Story and, like, uh, holy shit, uh, introversion software um, sitting up there. Uh, you know, very things that a couple of years ago you wouldn't... Uh, being able to do things that wouldn't have been expected of them a couple of years ago. Um, what do you think is the ideal size for a team um, to work on a game? Um, well, it's like, what is the ideal size to make a film or whatever? And the, the answer is, it very much depends on the subject matter. Um, you know, Lost Winds was fundamentally quite a small team and expands towards the end because you need to QA, you need to put languages in and all this sort of thing. Um, so I think we still do games with small teams and games with large teams, you know, outsider teams, over 100 in comparison. And, and I think that, that it's, it's horses for courses. Uh, you, know, that, um, you know, I know sort of Mark and Chris did the, the uh, introversion games with, with just a few of you. But having said that, it's, it, it very much then dictates the style of game you can do. And so um, a game like Lost Winds is actually sort of following that spirit to an extent. Um, but in terms of... It, it, it's like comparing... Um, there's a whole scale, you know, like making a television programme versus making an epic film. You know, and, and, and even below that, I suppose, is the YouTube equivalent um, of um, some, some iPhone games. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, and I think there's a place for all of them. You know, it, it's not that there is an ideal size. It's a bit like, um, you know, saying, you know, what is the ideal to sp- time to spend on a meal you're cooking? And the answer is, if, if you just quick dash in making a sandwich, then the answer is probably less than five minutes. If you've got a dinner party, you want to make it elaborate, multiple courses and all sorts of fancy stuff. Mm. You know, and, and I think, so, and I would like to, at some point, probably eat both of those kinds of meals and, you know, and, and lots of things in between. You know, so, and it's a bit like saying, do you prefer ice cream or meat? You know, that, that, mm. that um, they're both nice in their own places. So I, I think I'm evading the question a bit, which is... But, I, I mean, we, we talked a bit about the, the iPhone very briefly, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's clearly possible to make an iPhone game with a very small team. I mean, uh, last time I was on the stage, Simon Oliver creative Rolando I mean they basically did that game with with two people over the course of about Mm. nine months I believe Um, but while the iPhone platform can be because it's open because it's accessible and so on you know it's it's easy for people to make games for that there's the potential for creativity there surely is there a risk that that creativity can be lost because there are so many people developing for that platform I don't think the creativity has been lost I think um, there's a lot of opportunity you're right and it's that opportunity it just gets abused Mm. you know we saw this in the 80s we saw a lot of games that were just plain rubbish (laughs) and they were relying on fancy packaging or whatever um, to be sold Uh, I think there's the the beauty with the iPhone is often a lot of the games are sort of very quick impulse buys because they're so cheap but having said that there is a range some are interesting some are just plain poor Mm. and um, some are genius, you know, yeah, some yeah. are really lovely. So I don't want to sit here and criticise iPhone games because that would be terrible. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. Mm. You know, in the same way, you know, would um, Spielberg criticise YouTube? You know, it's not exactly a threat to him. And it's, it's lovely to see a lot of the sort of homegrown stuff that comes up on YouTube. It's great. Mm. You know, but, but that's not, you know, YouTube is a really great thing. And it, it's a different yeah. thing. You know, yeah. it's a different thing to, um, to, to the other... Um, opportunities that that are around. Mm. Well, it has chosen a different one. <laughs> so, 
Sorry, no, Darren, do you want to ask him? Ask, um, what kind of challenges, what kind of challenges, particularly critical challenges, do you face in an industry where the technology changes all the time? And in terms of a, a, a next generation breakthrough game, which you spoke of a few years ago at um, Develop, are the challenges more creative or are they more on the technical side to, to, make, to make that breakthrough possible? Um, the, the challenges for games, I think, are at so many different levels. I mean, the, 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 I, I think if you're just producing more of the same, which is something that I know our industry has been criticised a lot for. That's a lot easier. But, you know, we're not developing for the market today. We're developing the market for the market one, two, three years hence even. And I think, therefore, you've got to have a good feel for where things are going. Um, But also, in a a sense, it's, it's like a lot of the other creative media. If you're doing it purely for the money, without a real feel and love for what you're trying to do, I think it, it, it makes it that much harder because you're then decoupling yourself from the, the world that you're, you're writing for. I mean, I'm, I'm still a gamer, as I think are almost all of the people at Frontier. And in fact, that is a very, very useful sounding board. You know, if, if in a company that size, mm-hmm. we're, we're 230 people, um, people go, oh, can't be bothered, not interested. You just go, hmm, that's not a good sign. <laughs> you know, whereas if they're also, you know, wow, I really want that. Like when we took a leap first to Acorn, you know, really keen to, you think, hmm, maybe we're onto something here. You know, and there was so much enthusiasm for Lost Winds. That's why we were um, conscious of that. I and mean, that actually uh, was based around a, an internal um, group we have called Game of the Week, where people put forward ideas and we criticise them. And it's, it, 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 within an industry, are the, probably the worst and best critics for that because, you know, voraciously consume games. I mean, I'm sure you know what it's like, Phil, in the office. You think, oh, this is rubbish. When actually, really, what you mean is it's, it's nearly very, very good. Mm. And it's just that last bit makes you, you know, really frustrated. But to try and um, sort of... To, to, to sort of capitalise on that, if you like, it, it makes a huge difference in... Mm. in um, the end result of the games, because we're all fans of, of, of games and gamers at heart, you could, can have something that is genius, that does work really well. You know, and, and that's not because um, any one person necessarily come up with an, an, a game that's sort of fully formed, but it just needs a little tip to, to make it what, so it wouldn't, have, wouldn't be annoying when it might previously have been annoying to that person. You know, so... Um, it's, it's funny, uh, David Walsh, our managing director, likened it to um, dipping a, a piece of meat into a stream full of piranha and um, only the tough bits <laughs> remain after everyone sort of shouted it down or criticised it. Uh, and I, I think that's, that is a very good way of testing you know, which bits of a game work. So one of our, um, internally, we tend to show our games to other parts of the studio and see what people's reactions are. Because the beauty with that is we can do that and actually get a very honest and usually hypercritical, you know, ah, oh, it's rubbish because of this. But actually, no, why is it rubbish? Yeah. You know, well, how would we make it not rubbish? Because no one really want, in any field wants to make something that's, that someone's <laughs> going to say is rubbish. You know, you know, whenever a game comes out, you're always in the back of your mind, you're going, oh, I hope you like it. You know? <laughs> Same with a journalist article, whatever, a film, TV programme. Mm. Uh, some more questions? Uh, yeah, take gentleman there in the, the light shirt and then just yeah next one down nicholas level from games brief we've got a lot of platforms now iphone browser facebook plus all the console digital downloads if you were a student 
thinking about making the platform, the game you really wanted to make on one of those new platforms, which one would you pick today, starting with the same limitations you had back when you were a student? Well, it, 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 it's interesting in that there's a sort of... It, it's a difficult balance of the arrogance of wanting to do it your own, on your own. And if that's a key factor, um, it really also depends on what the idea you've got is. You know, if you look at a lot of the innovation that's happening now, it's not necessarily happening specifically in the game space. Some people have done some very clever, very interesting online games, which you might not even call games. You know, but the, the easy answer, the obvious one is the iPhone. But it's now such a crowded market, the chances of getting anywhere is very, very small. Um, the, the other opportunity is to look at you know, games publishers, games developers. Um, I, I think it really depends on what it is you want to get out of it. If you sort of back off and, and look, say, what do I want to achieve here? Is it that I want to make money and I want to be sort of um, some sort of corporate bigwig type? Or is it that I really want to be able to work with brand new platforms? You know, or is it that I want to see my name up in lights... Um, which is, is perfectly... They're all reasonable you know, things to want to do. Um, you know, the name up in lights, at least with iPhone, your name will be up there. The trouble is how many other people will see it up there in lights because there's, there's so much other um, morass. Now, other platforms, you know, like um, things like uh, WiiWare, where the, the, the cost of entry is higher because you need development kits and things like that, but at least that's a degree of a filter. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think the standard of games is, is, is correspondingly higher. Mm. You know, so um, Although we know the real answer is that you wouldn't make a game at all. You'd go off and develop software for the banking industry to take us all out of the recession. So that's the... Well, I mean, maybe there are other industries out there that haven't started yet. You know, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> that's the other, the other point. Um, but, but I think you know, that, that looking... It, it, it's, it's very hard. If you're, even if you're successful, and I think the... the um, you know, Introversion has shown that. I'm sure Mark would agree. You know that, that once you've been successful, then you you do want to grow from that. The art is actually, in some sense, is staying small, because the the beauty with elite is, um, you know, a couple of students are very very cheap to run, <laughs> whereas um, you know, a, a company, you know, you got salaries and all that sort of thing. If it's just you, hmm. um, so so there are a lot of hard things to balance. I think Nick, there are no easy answers to be honest. You know, it, it's uh, I, I'm. I think just looking at what it is you want to achieve first and a long, in a long, hard way. The trouble is, starting on your own, is, it's, a, it's a hard slog. And I was lucky enough, and, I, and so was Ian, to be at university at the time, when in those days you actually um, got a grant. And, you know, so so it's, it's much, much harder now. And so I would think, you know, be careful what you wish for, because, you know... You, you have to, you know, if you assume you're going to be the most successful game on iPhone, you're setting yourself up to be disappointed. Is there something to be said for maybe putting together an app, though, so that you actually finish something? You, you know, even if, if it's not there to d- design to make money, at least you've done something, you've got something to show people. And, you know, is there, is there a sort of a, a good benefit to having completed something? I think there can be, certainly sort of psychologically, but also just for, for, for sort of proof of future employers. But, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, do, doing something, a sort of a flash-based game or whatever, you know, you've just got to think, what am I trying to prove here? Mm. You know, that if that's where you want to work, then maybe. But, you know, that um, I think recommending someone 
doesn't do something is just as bad as recommending they do do something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there are certainly, if, with a programmer, what I would say is showing something of your own, it doesn't even need to be commercial in that sense. It can be something on a PC. And a lot of mm. people who apply to us for jobs have got demos of something they put together themselves. Yeah. And it's, it's really the familiarity for it, you know, seeing the love for it, why they do it that way, you know, the understanding of the sort of problems they'll come across and the fact they managed to solve them. Mm. That is the, the fantastic thing. Mm. Uh, we've just got time for a couple more questions. Uh, I think the guy just there with the jacket, if you could wait for the microphone. And we'll take one more after this. Uh, who else, who did I not see who has had their hand up for a long time? Be honest. <laughs> okay, one more person. Okay, I'll take just because of the person down here on the. Sorry. Yeah, that was the second one. Um, hi, um, I'm uh, Dell from up in Gusto Games. Um, I was actually going to ask you about narrative. I've, I've been a huge fan of yours. You're childhood hero. I was seven whenever I started playing Elite. You're very old. kind. <laughs> I feel old already. I know. It's, uh, and they always say you shouldn't meet your heroes, but frank, frankly, you've been great. I don't know about anybody else, but I think the talk's been great so You're far. You're too kind. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that there's sort of been a progression in your work. You started off very procedurally generated um, content, you would say, for Elite, where the narrative was very much generated by each user going in and playing the game, setting their own standards. As you said, narcotics and slaves to trade. Are you going to trade in them? Are you going to be a pirate? Very moral choices, but all very much developed from people's internal attitudes towards the game. Um, following that up, obviously, we've got things like virus and whatever, where you actually had a plot and you had a, a reason to be, but very limited narrative, but mm-hmm. still something that you gave to the player and allowed them to see through. Uh, following that on, with um, if we progress a lot further, Lost Winds, where there's a very definite plot and a very definite... Um, each stage is a progression, where you're, you're learning more about the world and you're being brought through a narrative. And now I notice that you're going on to The Outsider, which is, as you say, quite narrative-driven. It's, um, so how do you see narrative progressing in games? Is it as you've progressed through the games industry, you feel like you should be telling more of a story rather than letting users find their own? Um, I'm a strong believer in users finding their own story, and that's one of the reasons that in a lot of the games... I mean, you know, Wallace and Gromit was very strong... Pre, it's the preset nature of the narrative that I, I was uncomfortable with. With The Outsider, you can drive the narrative in many very different directions. And I think that's why um, that appeals to me. Um, I, I think that... Um, I, I thought a lot when I... Uh, in fact, in the days of Elite, I mean, I loved the film Star Wars, the first film. Um, and mainly because I wasn't very old at the time I saw that. You know, and, and so I like it because it wasn't the story I liked. I actually thought the story was really cheesy. But it was, the, it was remembering the world that, um, that it set. I mean, I actually saw the film at the cinema several times because I so loved it. And it was the immersion in the world, the story that the story was telling. And it made me think of story in a different way as well because the word narrative very much implies a serial nature to it. Whereas the storm... Um, if you look at how um, sort of non-written cultures with, with sort of fireside storytelling, which is something that... Um, it's sort of a skill that's been lost, I think, you know, where the story would be different each time it's told. And 
it, it, it sort of gets crystallised when it's written down. But, you know, saying, oh, there were these monsters. Mm. What you really... Mm. It's a cast of players and how they interact and how it gets told. And, and, and I think that's really what something like Star Wars, as an example, was for me. It was the world you had... Darth Vader, great, fantastic bad guy, these anonymous stormtroopers, you know, um, Luke Skywalker, which, of course, that's who you're supposed to empathise with, you know, suddenly becomes, saves the world, as all, we all want to do at some point. You know, and, and so I, I think that it's that feeling of it. You know, the order of events didn't matter. The fact that you were rescuing a princess, although that was quite a fun idea, it was so hackneyed, that the point was you had this slightly bolshy princess character who is in this world. It's just a very different world that you get immersed into. So the, the way I think we're going with, um, with storytelling is, is it's that immersion in the world that people crave. I think the, the, the recent Batman game, Arkham Asylum, that I've been playing is really good because, yeah, it's fantastic. You know, I had nothing to do with it, by the way. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the reason I liked it is it, it, it means the world is believable in the Batman mindset. Yeah. It's clearly been written by people who have a love for the game. And I think that's what I absolutely applaud and I love to see. And it, it's fantastic that they've been given that opportunity by whoever. I mean, Batman must be a nightmare for licensing, but they've managed to do it. And mm. they've managed to do new stuff in the Batman world. Yeah. You know, and, and so with that, what they're doing is they're sort of telling a story, but the narrative isn't so strong. You know, that, that um, you know, <coughs> this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Even though it's a preset narrative, the, it didn't feel it so much. It felt you were being slightly self-driven. And so... Um, Perhaps more so than I would like, but I do know the challenge of having to get that right. They've done a very, very good job. You know, and, and as we move towards it, with, with something like The Outsider, getting you, the, the narrative not to be dictatorial is appealing. I've seen it in, in you know, there are a lot of other games. I quite liked the way Fallout 3 did it, for example, really appealed to me. Because you, could, you didn't have to follow the story. You can go, there were all these lovely side stories that all worked together. I thought that was really good. Um, you know, so I think as an industry, we're doing a very good job, mostly with storytelling. But we've only just started to scratch the surface. You know, most games are, are, are quite serial, you know, cutscene, bit of gameplay, cutscene, bit of gameplay. Now, that's not mean, meaning to belittle that, because, you know, we've done games like that. But the, the point is, it's, it's a challenge, and it's trying to give that, that freedom to the player, or the perception of freedom, to create your own narrative. You know, in Elite, the narrative was absolutely minimal. But that meant the narrative was very rich in your head. You know, it, it, I mean, some, someone, a lot of people have said the beauty with books is they create, the images are all created in your head, whereas the imagination is somehow lost when that same book is expressed as a film because everything is done for you, mm. what the characters look like, how they speak, and all that sort of thing. And, and I think it's a different medium, and we've got yet another different medium here which we can experiment with, and we're just learning. We're really finding our feet still. You know, and we'll probably be saying that in five years' time, but we'll be so much better than where we are now, hopefully. Better had we. <laughs> you know, and, and, so, and, and a further five years on from that. You know, so I think, yes, I, I, um, in a sense, narrative might be, for me, proceeding the wrong way. Um, but it's trying to get that freedom. I mean, we're all exploring you know, as best we can. At least certainly I feel I am to do um, as good a job, as entertaining a job, as possible, and actually, what sort of happens with some of the games? We're we're trying to push on a different front. It's always hard to push on all fronts at once, and sometimes the the best way to do that is actually say, "All right, that actually worked quite well. Let's use that kind of mechanic, but let's push this way." 
You know, so, I mean, that sounds a little, like, little bit like apologising, but, um, you know, I think narrative and storytelling is something I care hugely about, um, and I know it's, it's really, really hard to do, and the more I try and do it, the harder I realise it is. But you're absolutely right. It's a, it's, um, it's a hard challenge that we all should try and work at. Mm. Just uh, one, one more question down here in the front corner. Okay, oh, so uh, sorry. <laughs> I know this this guy in the middle here did have his hand up, so we'll yep. just make that the last question uh, with the dark blue shirt. Hi, uh, Tom Dinsdale. Um, obviously, we're sat in, in in BAFTA. I was wondering how you felt video games now sat in situ of the other kind of like great creative mediums, you know, like film, television, uh, music, books, etc. What what do you see? as being its place in situ of all of them? Um, we're, we're in many ways seen as the sort of the pipsqueak. We're the poor relation. Um, you know, the, the, the average age of video gamers is now, I, I believe, over 30, which is actually not very different to the average age of the population. You know, it's, mm. it's sort of, it's a bit below it. But the point is, um, video games have got a lot of acceptance, but if you talk to people like, I don't know, MPs, have very little experience of video games. There are, there are various groups of people, for whatever reason, you know, people who don't have kids, you know, who've not, they've not impinged. Mm. Um, as a sort of, I would say, my generation and younger have largely been brought up with video games, so it's not such an issue. But even so, there are groups who, oh, yes, I haven't played a video game for 20 years type of people, or since Elite, in fact, yeah, yeah. people say that. Um, maybe we put well, them off. Till you turn them off. Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I, I, I think that the point is that it's because we're, we're still quite an amateurish industry compared to the film industry. But I think that's a good thing. But I mean amateurish in the sense of we we, we haven't quite, you know, we we're, we're still working very hard to do what we're we're doing to do it better. But it's changing so rapidly. I, I think we're a work moving target. I mean that, that um, you know we, we, we've had the recent launch of GTA Four which by some metrics is the biggest entertainment event of all time. It actually just outside to- outsold Titanic if you measure the first week's sales, which I think were very close to a billion dollars, as again, depending on how you measure it, if you mm. include sales tax and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's very close to Titanic, but the point is it's up there. And that's true of quite a lot of video games. You know, so in that sense, in the financial sense, we've arrived. But in much the same way that um, quite often... Um, the, the really commercially successful films are sneered at by people who say, you know, that this is artistically a really good film but didn't do well at the box office. Yeah. Um, versus the James Bond films and things like that, you know, clearly Harry Potter as well, mass market, and therefore not considered for some of these sort of more, dare I say, arty views. Games are still in that mindset. We really need to start creating games that appeal across a wider audience. You know, and so I, I think we're, we're gradually... The very fact that we're at BAFTA is a fantastic sign. You know, that, and, and, and so I think we are moving forward in a very, very positive way. But whether, you know, to say we've arrived is, is all very, you know, it clearly isn't true. But we are arriving. You know, we, we're now starting to attract people's attention. Fundamentally, all it really means, all games really are, is an interactive medium. You know, that, that in a few years' time, it's already starting to happen... We're watching our um, visual entertainment through the same device. You know, that um, you watch films using, I don't know, the Blu-ray player on your PS3 or streamed on your 360. You know, that there's the deal that Microsoft have announced with Sky. You know, wow. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a conversion of the media. And then 
all the games are doing is showing the in, an interactive part to it. Whether that interactive part is quite small or quite large, you know, some of the games recently um, have had stupidly long cutscenes. I was thinking metal, the latest Metal Gear, mm. um, which is great. That's fine. It, it's, it's a creative use of a medium. There's no harm in it. It's just it might not be what you, the way you choose to use it, but, but that's a creative choice. And I think it's very interesting. You know, and I, I think some films have experimented with the idea that everyone in the audience can press a button and that chooses which ending you get. You know, that's interactivity, but it's mm. not a game. So I think as we move forward, we're producing things that aren't necessarily games that are getting as wider appeal. A lot of the, um, the, get the, the games on Wii aren't necessarily games. They're as much toys as games. Rollercoaster Tycoon probably isn't a game. It's a toy. Because it, given the way most people play it, similarly The Sims, you know, people are, spend all their time creating wonderful parks, coasters. They're not doing it as a challenge to other than their own creative ability. They're not doing it to achieve a score or to beat someone else in the dictionary definition of games. You know, they're doing it because they love the process of doing it. You know, it's a bit like someone gardening to make a beautiful garden. And I think that is a fantastic thing. So that's where I think we are in games. And I, I think it's that, you know, the next 25 years, I, I hope, are going to be just as exciting as the last. Mm, absolutely. Well, we can all drink to that in the bar afterwards. Uh, we're going to hang around there for a little bit. Um, I'll draw proceedings to close now. I'm off to uh, eBay the micro, but only after <laughs> I've, uh, only after I've first searched through, booted up Elite and searched for a star system called Ars. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, David Braben. Thank you. Thank you.